Hello and welcome back to the Ear Fuel Podcast. As always, I'm Joel Freemark, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @getearfuel and at the Daily Guru. The podcast is always available in the iTunes and Google Play stores under Earfuel and at getearfuel.com. This week, I am going to continue the discussion on censorship in music from last time, but before that, well, I was going to review the new album from Dan Auerbach, but I actually don't think it's going to take very long. The album is called Waiting on a Song, and in short, he should have waited a few more years to put this album together. It's clearly an attempt at being a throwback love letter to the artists that inspired him, infused with that Nashville sound that everyone on the planet is doing these days. The opening track is good, but that's really all there is to dig on this album. The remainder of the songs get old and repetitive very fast, and honestly, the overall mix on the record is terrible. Also, there's a musical identity crisis going on here, as Dan can't seem to figure out which direction to take on the songs, and this leads to a lack of any flow or feeling. Even for superfans of Auerbach and the Black Keys, this is the sort of album that you're going to listen to once, hoping to prove all the haters wrong, and then you'll move on, because the songs just aren't there. It's that simple. Moving on. Last time around, we covered the early years of music censorship, from its beginnings in the 1920s all the way to the mid-1970s when album covers started to become an issue. This week, we're going to get into the biggest years of censorship in music, which is basically around 1982 until around 1990. And while there are unquestionably some incidents that did occur in the late 1970s, like Salt Lake City banning Olivia Newton-John's song Physical because they felt it was too risque, yeah, I still think that we need to start today with the most notorious of all anti-free speech institutions when it comes to music, the Parents Music Resource Center, or the PMRC. Actually, one quick thing before we get to the PMRC, because there was a very important Supreme Court ruling in 1978, and it basically gave the FCC way more latitude in terms of their legal reach. This court case did not come from a radio station playing a song. It came from a radio station playing a legendary track from the great George Carlin. No bad words, bad thoughts, bad intentions, and words. You know the seven, don't you, that you can't say on television? Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits, huh? The infamous seven words you can't say on television, which, believe it or not, was actually aired on WBAI here in New York City back in 1973. Over the next five years, John Douglas, who was a member of the still-active lobbying group Morality and Media, claimed that he was driving with his 15-year-old son when the clip aired and he complained to the FCC that it was inappropriate for public broadcast. Because, you know, 15-year-olds have never heard somebody swear before. This case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where in 1978, a 5-4 decision was handed down, basically stating that the FCC's sanctions on WBAI did not violate the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Again, the Supreme Court said that banning this audio did not violate free speech rights. Now, this was a huge line in the sand that the Supreme Court moved. The decision allowed the FCC to ban things that were indecent but not obscene. It opened a massive gray area for government intervention in all forms of media, and it's constantly argued in courts to this day. 
This ruling was also the precursor to another Supreme Court decision, which created what many people refer to as safe harbor laws. This is the stance that allows broadcasters to air, again, indecent but not obscene material between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. You know, those risque videos and songs with questionable language and, well, South Park, among other shows. So keep this moment in the back of your mind, because the court ruling is what paved the way for the PMRC just a few years later. The Parents Music Resource Center is one of those things that lots of people talk about, but the roots and beginnings are rarely explored these days. The reality is, the emergence of the PMRC remains a flashpoint in music censorship, and it begins with four women called the Washington Wives. The two most prominent were Susan Baker, whose husband Jim was the Treasury Secretary at the time, and by the way, we are talking about the year 1985, and the other is, of course, Tipper Gore, wife of later President Al Gore and a true champion for censorship in the arts. If there's a public enemy number one for freedom of expression in music, it's probably Tipper Gore. So, the four women banded together and formed a committee to try and increase the parental control over the access that kids had to music. Apparently, being a better and more active parent wasn't enough for these four, so they got the government to try and do the job for them instead. Their target was the music that they deemed to have drug-related or overly sexual themes, along with music that was, in their minds, extremely violent. Their main focus was the rising hair metal and heavy metal scene, but every world would eventually get dragged into the fray. Pop, R&B, jazz. Yeah, jazz got censored. We're going to get to that in a bit. To support their case, the Washington Wives released what they called the Filthy 15, which was a collection of songs that they found the most objectionable. Some of the more recognizable songs on the list were Cyndi Lauper's Shebop, due to the sexual overtones, Twisted Sisters were not going to take it due to violence. Yeah, okay, sure, I guess it's a violent song. Anyway, Madonna's Dress You Up, Black Sabbath's Trashed. You know most of the songs on the list. Trust me. But at the center of the controversy was a very specific song, perhaps seen as top of the list of the Filthy 15, Prince's Darling Nikki from his magnificent Purple Rain record. Now, I will give them this, that even by Prince standards, Darling Nikki is pretty overly sexual, but damn is it a good song. Many people point to this song specifically as the reason that Tipper Gore started the PMRC, as according to a number of reliable sources, she walked in on her then 11-year-old daughter singing the song, and, well, like I said, she wanted the government to be a better parent for her. Anyway, the Washington wives quickly got their ducks in a row, and a Senate hearing was convened in the summer of 1985. To support their argument, they brought in record covers from bands like Wasp and Def Leppard, along with the video for Van Halen's Hot for Teacher. Like I said, hard rock was really used as the evidence for overreaching censorship in all genres. During the presentation, then-Florida Senator Paula Hawkins said, quote, Music has changed since Elvis's seemingly innocent times. Subtleties, suggestions, and innuendo have given way to overt expressions and descriptions of often violent sexual acts, drug-taking, and flirtations with the occult. Ooh, so spooky. 
Later, the national PTA testified, asking for similar labeling to the movies. They had music professors testify, child psychologists. I mean, this was a huge deal, and the Washington wives laid it on thick. But leading the charge against the PMRC was a rather unlikely trio of musicians made up of Twisted Sisters D. Snyder, folk and country legend John Denver, and perhaps the most prolific musician of his generation, Frank Zappa. Here is the opening of Frank's testimony. It's so good. The PMRC proposal is an ill-conceived piece of nonsense which fails to deliver any real benefits to children, infringes the civil liberties of people who are not children, and promises to keep the courts busy for years dealing with the interpretational and enforcemental problems inherent in the proposal's design. It is my understanding that, in law, First Amendment issues are decided with a preference for the least restrictive alternative. In this context, the PMRC demands are the equivalent of treating dandruff by decapitation. No one has forced Mrs. Baker or Mrs. Gore to bring Prince or Sheena Easton into their homes. Thanks to the Constitution, they are free to buy other forms of music for their children. Apparently, they insist on purchasing the works of contemporary recording artists in order to support a personal illusion of aerobic sophistication. Ladies, please be advised, the $8.98 purchase price does not entitle you to a kiss on the foot from the composer or performer in exchange for a spin on the family Victrola. Taken as a whole, the complete list of PMRC demands reads like an instruction manual for some sinister kind of toilet training program to housebreak all composers and performers because of the lyrics of a few. Ladies, how dare you? Brutally on point as Frank always was. His entire testimony is about a half hour long and well worth the watch on YouTube, both for his brilliant words as well as his verbal sparring with senators. It's pretty cool. We'll get back to Zappa in a bit as he is far from done being involved with the PMRC. During John Denver's testimony, he focused on the fact that lyrics and song titles are often completely misinterpreted, as was the case with his song Rocky Mountain High. He also pointed out that, quote, that which is being denied becomes that which is most desired, and that which is being hidden becomes that which is most interesting. Consequently, a great deal of time and energy is spent trying to get at what is being kept from you. Many senators were actually surprised by his testimony as they expected Denver to be in favor of censoring lyrics given his non-pop-leaning music. The PMRC board was also a bit shocked as Denver's words were pretty damning, or so you'd think. D. Snyder also focused on misinterpretations, stating that the PMRC twisted, no pun intended, his words to fit their needs. He closed with the statement, quote, The full responsibility for defending my children falls on the shoulders of my wife and I, because there is no one else capable of making these judgments for us. Pretty heavy stuff, and all of this is going on in Congress, but at the same time, the PMRC is putting together some very large corporate supporters and putting tons of pressure on the RIAA, which is the Recording Industry Association of America. They're the organization that represents about 90% of all labels and distributors in the U.S. More recently, you might remember them for being the jerks that sued kids for downloading songs in the Napster days. You remember when Lars Ulrich really wanted his three cents, damn it! Napster! Bad! They're also the people that tried to strip artists of their copyrights in 1999, handing them over to record labels. And they almost won. 
So in short, the RIAA are a bunch of money-hoarding evil people that don't really care about music, but I digress. The hearings are in full swing, and the PMRC focused in on the RIAA with some very heated exchanges going on between the two groups. The PMRC was really pushing to have those movie-style rating systems put onto records. You can kind of think of it the way that the video game industry has taken their levels of content ratings, but the RIAA was not too keen on that idea. At the same time, for whatever reason, the RIAA did feel pressure to provide some sort of labeling to records, and you can actually find a handful of differently worded stickers in the early days. Some said things like, tone of this record unsuitable for minors. Some simply said, parental guidance. And some said, mature content. But none of these seemed to make both parties happy. This dragged out for months, past the end of the hearings, until the now-iconic black-and-white parental advisory explicit content stickers were eventually agreed upon. The first record to bear the new sticker was 2 Live Crew's 1990 release, banned in the USA, and within the first two years, nearly 300 albums were slapped with this warning. Now, in terms of how albums were, and kind of to this day, are chosen for the dubious honor of having a parental advisory sticker... The RIAA said it applied to albums with, quote, strong language or depictions of violence, sex, or substance abuse to such an extent as to merit parental notification. If you don't know what ambiguous means, that is ambiguous. Once the stickers became commonplace, a number of national chains refused to sell any album with the label. Now remember, this is the late 80s into the early 90s, so digital music was non-existent. The RIAA and labels were completely dependent on in-store sales for money, so the labels had to cave to some extent. When faced with stores refusing to carry albums with parental advisory stickers, labels started making clean or sanitized versions of albums. This would then lead to clean versions of songs for radio, and in some cases, songs sound completely different between the two takes. Other stores claimed to require an ID check to purchase albums with these stickers, but actual instances of this happening seemed few and far between. Ironically, in almost every study since the introduction of the sticker, the results have shown that the label actually aided in record sales. The basic idea was that the sticker makes such music easier to spot and perhaps more desirable due to the implied dangerous nature of the music inside. Or in other words, exactly what John Denver said. Other studies showed that in the era of mixtapes and eventually CD burning, kids would get the music one way or another. From my own experience, I was never prevented from buying any music in those days. White Zombie, NWA, Slayer, The Notorious B.I.G., it really didn't matter. I mean, think about it. Is some young record store employee going to care about who they're selling music to? Nope. Well, actually, there was one incident very early on. In 1990, a local music store owner was arrested for selling a copy of Two Live Crew's Nasty As They Wanna Be to an undercover cop. A Florida, of course it was Florida, judge ruled that the album was obscene and should not be sold, which was later overturned by an appeals court. But it did happen. But don't think all of this went away at some point, because the stickers themselves and remnants of them are still very present in today's music culture. Ever wonder why so many tracks in the iTunes store have that red box that says explicit next to them? Yeah, 
it's the modern day version of the stickers. Even on this podcast, and we're going to have to do it on today's podcast, if you say too many curse words or anything like that, iTunes basically requires you to select that it be marked with an explicit content flag. There is one absolutely hilarious moment, though, that I want to point out, as it perfectly captures just how stupid and futile labeling records both was and is, and it occurred in late 1986. Throughout the United States, there is a chain of stores under the Fred Meyer Company. Meyer, Value Mart, more recently Kroger, they all fall under this umbrella now. But back in 1986, they took music censorship to a wonderfully absurd level, putting a parental advisory sticker on all of their copies of the Grammy-winning album, Jazz from Hell, released by, you guessed it, Frank Zappa. Zappa certainly had his fair share of controversial lyrics and images throughout his career, but Jazz from Hell is a bit different because it's a completely instrumental album. There are no lyrics whatsoever. None. Some do claim that the move by Meyer was made due to the song G-Spot Tornado appearing on the album, but more people believe it was done due to Zappa's very public feud with the PMRC. Regardless, an album with no lyrics was given a sticker for explicit lyrics. Genius. In the end, this is almost all about words. Sure, conservatives like to pull out scandalous album covers and videos, but even going all the way back to the 1930s, the thing in question here is words. Words are what the PMRC had an issue with. Words are what the FCC still wants to regulate. George Carlin dragged that reality into the spotlight, and while it certainly is a funny bit, the truth is that this is about free speech. I'm going to close this by turning back to Frank Zappa one more time, and a debate that he had on the CNN show Crossfire back in 1986. This interaction you're going to hear is with a conservative columnist from the Washington Post, and it's kind of all you need to hear on the issue. Do you think that you're protecting somebody by taking away seven words? It's not just words. It is words. It's about words. Words also connote ideas, Mr. Zappa. Are you, are you for songs that portray incest as just another kind of sex and perhaps even preferable sex? Are you for that? Would you ban the mention of any incestual activities? Would you? Well, why don't we make a plan? Why don't you better take show. a look at the Bible yeah. and see what's in there? What yeah. happens after Sodom and Gomorrah? The Bible does Gamora. not advocate incest. But it, it condemns it, it Frank. It mentions it. We're, well, we're talking about advocacy, Mr. Zappa. No, we're not. We're talking about words. No, we're, we're not talking, talking about, about content words. of the words. Oh, you don't think words connote ideas? Huh? Yes, they can be assembled yeah. into sentences that get yeah. ideas. Well, how about answering my question about incest? Do you support records that promote incest as just just another kind of sex, or in some instances, it might even be preferable. Do you agree with that? No, I don't agree with it. I have no interest in incest, but I don't think that anybody in his right mind would uh -huh. desire to have the government step in to make sure that they install a censor board that keeps certain things from being said. Now, before we wrap the episode, I do, of course, have your weekly ear fuel listening assignment. For those of you new to the podcast, each week I assign an album to listen to in full, beginning to end, without any distractions or interruptions. It stems from the fact that these days, music has become largely relegated to a background task. You're at the gym, you're driving, you're at work, whatever. And this assignment is about taking some time each week to consciously listen to music for the sake of music alone. This week, your listening assignment is one that might ruffle some folks in the wrong way. It's my favorite release from Nine Inch Nails. 
1992's Broken. Don't get me wrong, I love the Downward Spiral and Pretty Hate Machine, and The Slip remains an underappreciated gem. But for me, the Broken EP is in a universe all its own. It was released between Pretty Hate Machine and The Downward Spiral, and technically, it's the major label debut from Nine Inch Nails. But things weren't easy at all in making this album, as their initial label, TVT, basically demanded that Trent Reznor make another Pretty Hate Machine, and they made it clear they would not release anything not along those lines. This led to a lot of legal stuff that eventually landed Nine Inch Nails on Interscope Records, but it also meant that he had to do all of the initial recordings in secret under a completely different name. And the results? Well, sometimes I think Trent needs serious adversity to create his best work. What I love most about this album is just how unrelentingly aggressive it is. It just never lets up. Not to call any Nine Inch Nails release mellow or relaxed, but from the get-go, this EP grabs you by your throat and it just keeps punching the entire time and oh, it is so great! This is really where you gain a quick understanding of why Trent Reznor's early work is seen as an industrial metal combination. In fact, the song Wish won the Best Metal Performance Grammy, and with good reason, because it is a monster track. I would put Wish up against any other song in the Nine Inch Nails catalog in terms of power and just overall awesome. The tension is phenomenal, and it's hard not to get completely caught up in the song. Uh, Really, seriously, this song is just chaotic sonic brilliance, and you must, 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 must know it. There's just more distortion, and it's just louder than anything else from beginning to end, and Reznor's goal of creating a, quote, ultra-fast chunk of death is a pretty solid description. Even when the tempo kicks down slightly, the pummeling is still present, and songs like Help Me I'm in Hell and Gave Up have this gritty, uneasy feeling that you just can't pull away from. It's like you're hearing the soundtrack of a futuristic nervous breakdown happening as a race car slams into an atomic bomb. Yeah, that makes sense to me. There's just this wall of sound that hits you like a tidal wave, and you can't deny the fantastic musicality guiding what some may just seem as noise. The form is beautiful. Chances are you've heard a decent amount of Nine Inch Nails over the years, but this EP gets overlooked and in some cases completely forgotten. In all honesty, once you've experienced this one, the rest of the Nine Inch Nails catalog might come off as a bit... tame? I mean, still amazing, but, well, you're just going to hear things a bit differently. For my money, this is the best music Nine Inch Nails ever released, and if you're not familiar with Broken, you need to change that right now. Thank me later. So that's all for this week. Make sure you hit me up on Twitter at at GetYourFuel and at the Daily Guru, and let me know if you ever had a run-in with buying albums with those fun explicit lyric stickers and they wouldn't let you. As always, the podcast is available in the iTunes and Google Play stores, along with at GetEarFuel.com. That is your weekly ear fuel. Share and enjoy. <laughs>